Y'all turn with me to the book of Jonah this morning. We're in Jonah as we continue our series called Hero School, looking at how God takes ordinary people like us and does amazing things through them. We have this idea, this false idea, I think, that that God takes outstanding people who have this fantastic faith and this sparkling testimony who always do the right thing. And he says, okay, you're my all-star. You go to bat for me here. And they do these amazing things. But the truth is, God takes ordinary people, flawed people, and he trains them up, he builds them up, and he uses them in amazing ways. And that's us. And by the way, before we get into this, if anybody is grieving for me this morning and the, the game last night, I'm all right. It's just a game. You know, I appreciate your sympathies. I'll practice my free throws for next year, okay? So uh, <laughs> some of you may be aware of this, but one of the more popular funeral songs is My Way by Frank Sinatra. It's become very popular the last 10, 15 years as funerals have become less and less a worship service and more and more a kind of a celebration of a person's life uh, to, to do some of their favorite songs, the, pers- the, love, the, the departed loved one, to use some of their favorite songs in there. Um, I, I just need to say a couple of things about this. First of all, I am a big Frank Sinatra fan. I love his music. Uh, on my Pandora, I even have a, a, a Frank Sinatra channel, so I hear his music sometimes. Good singer, great singer, pretty good actor, not a good judge of character, really. Had some, some bad associations in his life, but that's none of my business. So this is not a knock on Sinatra. And as a pastor, I, I'm privileged to do a funeral anytime someone asks me to eulogize their loved one. I'm honored to do it. I want to be as accommodating as possible. I've done funerals where they did the fight song of the person's alma mater. I mean, I've done, I've done funerals where they played a favorite song that was kind of a folky song or a country song or a rock song. Usually it's not as good an idea as you think it's going to be. It, it usually doesn't turn out like you hope. It, it kind of seems awkward. But, you know, basically my attitude is if I get to preach the gospel, if I get to minister to people who are hurting, I'll put up with almost anything. But can I just say, at the risk of sounding intolerant, there's probably not a worse song you can play at a funeral than My Way. Okay? And and for those of you that don't know the song, it starts with the words, and now the time is near, and so I face the final curtain. So it's about a guy who's at the end of his life, and he, it goes on and he talks about how, yeah, I've got regrets, but none that I'd mention. We're, you know, I've lived a good life. And he ends the song this way, for what is a man, what has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels, the record shows I took the blows and I did it my way. And the song is about a guy who says, I've lived life on my terms. I did what I wanted. No one was my boss. I served no one. I did what I wanted and did not bow to anybody else. And I know that's a very attractive idea, especially if we can be honest to a lot of us men. But that is the exact opposite of the Christian life. You realize that, right? I mean, the Christian life was summed up when Jesus said, Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Basically, die to who you are and become someone else. Uh, Jesus, I think even Sinatra would, would agree with me that Jesus lived the greatest life that's ever been lived, and yet he would say, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve others. He would say, I don't do what I want to do, I do what my Father tells me to do. He would say uh, to, to Nicodemus, by the way, a much more righteous and religious man than anybody in this room, 
He would say to him in John chapter 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. He's looking at this guy who has devoted himself to being good and he says, that's not enough. You need to become a new person. You need to die to yourself and take on my identity. As Paul would later say, I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live, now Christ lives in me. The Christian life is to say, my neighbor is more important than I am. My God is more important than I am. I am putting them first. I'm now living the life Christ wants me to live, not the life I want to live. And and one more quote along those lines. C.S. Lewis once said, there are two kinds of people in this world. The kind who say, thy will be done, and the kind to whom God says, all right then, have it your way. And that's not the category you want to be in. Have it your way is not what you want. That's eternal separation from God. That's destruction. That is a life apart from God's plan. We've been talking all this year about how God has a purpose for you. He made you. So don't be stubborn. Don't be a fool. Don't say, yes, but this is what I want. And can we be honest here? I mean, we're in church. God knows if we're lying, so we might as well be honest. A lot of us religious people are just as stubborn as people who don't know Christ. We're just stubborn in a different way. We'll, we'll, say, we'll say, okay, Lord, I'm going to go to church every Sunday and I'm going to memorize Scripture, and I'm going to give an offering, and I'm going to abstain from certain vices, and I'm going to be good. But what we're really doing is we're trying to manipulate God into giving us what we want somewhere else. We haven't become less stubborn. We're just as stubborn. We just, we've just found a new way to try to go about getting what we want. And that's all our Christian life is about. We are stubborn. And by the way, if you're married right now, now's not the time to dig your elbow into your husband's ribs, okay? He's stubborn, yes, but you are too. All right, we are all stubborn people. But let me just say, there is a good kind of stubborn, and that's what our message is about today. What is the good kind of stubborn? If you know the story of Jonah, and if you grew up in church, you know the story of Jonah. You know this was a stubborn man. One of the, one of the stubbornest people who's ever lived. And the story begins, chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So Jonah is a prophet. That's what it means when it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah because a prophet was simply someone who had a word that God gave them to speak to people. See, back then they didn't have the Bible in printed form. It wasn't complete. So if you wanted to know what God was saying, God sent a message through a, through a chosen designated spokesperson, a man or a woman. They were both male and female prophets. And they would come and say, the Lord has laid this word on my heart and I'm giving it to you now. Which sounds like, okay, that's a pretty good job. But if you read the prophetic books of the Old Testament, and right now, uh, for the last several months, on Wednesday nights, I've been, I've been walking through the books of the Old Testament. Same thing on Sunday nights with our college and career young people, l- walking through the books of the Old Testament. When you get to the second half of the Old Testament, the prophetic books, Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they're not fun to read. Because I'll be honest, the, the prophets seem cranky. They seem angry all the time, you know, Isaiah, Ezekiel, especially Amos, they wouldn't have been much fun at parties. But why is that? These people who knew God so well. John Ortberg, one of my favorite preachers, explained it one time in a way that I've never been able to forget. So I want to share this with you. 
Because this helps us understand these prophetic books. He said, imagine someone who has perfect musical pitch. Someone who can hear a note being sung and say, okay, that's not quite right. Someone who could walk into the church and say, that piano hasn't been tuned in, I guess, three weeks, right? They just, their, their ear is so finely tuned. Imagine you're someone like that, and you live in a world where people don't know how to sing, where everyone sings off key, and they sing all the time, constantly, like they're in the middle of a musical. And, and you're sitting there saying, well, but the person sitting next to me today in church, they helped me with that analogy today because I, I could hear them singing, and they're driving me crazy. Now, imagine you're... You're a person with perfect pitch. You hear this terrible music all around you. How it would drive you insane. The prophets in the Old Testament, they had perfect spiritual pitch. They were so in tune with God, they knew what God wanted. They knew right from wrong. And they could see all around them, human beings like you and me, some of them just flagrantly disobeying God, living in disbelief of Him, but others like most of us who have these little subtle rebellions. These little ways that we try to get around God's rules and try to do our own thing. And, and for a prophet, that had to drive them nuts because they knew where all that led. And they were constantly saying, what's the matter with you people? Don't you see that you're destroying yourselves? Don't you see that the path you're on leads to destruction and humiliation? So this is Jonah. Jonah has devoted his life to telling people what God has to say giving people God's viewpoint. And now God comes to him with a new assignment. I want you to speak this message, Jonah, not to your fellow Jews, but to the people of Nineveh. Now, where's Nineveh? Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. So if you know history, you know Rome, Rome, great Roman Empire. And before Rome, there was, there was Persia. And before Persia, there was Babylon. All these great empires of antiquity. Assyria came before all those. They were the big dog in the Mediterranean world. They, they won every battle. They conquered everything they saw. The difference between Assyria and those other kingdoms, Assyria was interested only in death and destruction and conquest. I mean, if you look back at history, Rome and Persia, Babylon, Greece, they all produced things. They, they advanced civilization in some way, learning and writing and art and, and, and politics. The Assyrians didn't do any of that. Their contribution to the world was, hey, there's another country. I think I'll kill them. I think I'll invade them and kill the men and rape the women and, and enslave the children, and, and then we'll move on from there. The way I like to see it is Assyria back then was what it would be like today if ISIS was a superpower. Just a, a group of people bent on destruction and conquest and with all the power they need to accomplish it. And so when Jonah hears God say, I want you to take a message to the Ninevites, a message of destruction, a message of judgment, Jonah does the calculus in his mind and he says, but wait, Lord, if I take a message of judgment to the Ninevites, there's a chance, minuscule, yes, but a chance that they might get afraid and turn from their sins. And if they turn from their sins, I know you. I know how you are. And you'll forgive them. And you won't bring any of this destruction on them at all. And, and it'll be like they never sinned at all. And I don't want that. Why warn them, Lord? Why give them any notice at all? Why not just strike them in their sleep? Why not one day they're doing their own thing and the next day they wake up and they're in hell? Isn't that the way it should be, Lord? I think it should be that way. And so Jonah doesn't just say no to God. He gets on a boat and sails the opposite direction. Now, I don't know this for sure, but my own theory is I don't think Jonah actually thought he could get away from God on a boat. 
But if the scholars are right, Tarshish, the place he was going, was way out to the west. In fact, some even think it was modern-day Spain. So Jonah is saying to God, not only am I not going to do what you're asking me to do, I'm going to go to the end of the world. I'm going to go as far away from, from Nineveh as you can possibly get. But God won't have that. And so God sends this incredible storm, and the storm rages through the Mediterranean Sea, and these sailors who are, who are, who are leading the boat, who are, who are guiding the boat that, uh, that Jonah is on, these crusty men of the sea who've seen everything, they're terrified. And they go around the boat asking passengers, hey, are you praying to your God? Are you praying to your God? I'm praying to my God. And they find Jonah asleep in the boat, which should remind you of someone. There's a story in the New Testament about Jesus doing something similar. And they wake up Jonah and they say, what's the matter with you? Why aren't you praying to your God? And he says, I'll tell you why I'm not praying. Because I know what's going on here. It's my God, not one of your false gods. My God, the one true God, is bringing this storm because I'm not obeying Him. And they say, well... Can't you do something about that? He says, yeah, sure. Throw me overboard, kill me, and God will leave you alone. So they do. They pick him up and they throw him overboard. And as soon as Jonah hits the water, the storm stops. And here's the really cool part. These pagan sailors convert at that point. They say, okay, obviously this is the one true God. And they offer sacrifices and vow their lives to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And Jonah is so struck by this, the storm and the way the storm stilled. He says, okay, God, you were right. I was wrong. Just rescue me from this water and I'll go to Nineveh, right? Now, that's actually not what happened. Jonah says, all right, Lord, I'm going to hold my breath and sink to the bottom of this ocean and I'm going to drown because I'd rather drown than do what you say because that's how pig-headed and stubborn Jonah is. But we're just getting started. Verse 17 of chapter 1. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Don't you love that verb? He provided. He provided a fish. He provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now the chapter 2 verse 1 says, from inside the fish Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. So let me show you what's, let me point out what's significant about that. Jonah goes into the water. He's not ready to give up. He's ready to drown rather than repent. A whale swallows him. Jonah's like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know there were whales in the Mediterranean. God really does mean business. But he still doesn't repent. He recognizes as he's alive inside this whale for three days, soaking in gastric juices, being slowly digested. He finally realizes, I'm not going to win. It takes him three days before he finally prays to God. This is how stubborn he is. Three days, he finally says, okay, Lord, please forgive me. I'll do what you ask. And then verse 10 of chapter 2, which is probably your favorite in the whole Bible, right? And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Don't you love any verse of the Bible that has the word vomited in it, okay? So, so here it is. Wait for it. Wait for it. The whale decided you can't keep a good man down. They didn't think it was funny at 8.30 either. Um, I think it's hilarious. But So Jonah is expelled from this fish. And God calls him and says, Hey Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to tell them they're going to die. They're about to face my judgment. And Jonah says, You know, Lord, I think that's an excellent idea. <laughs> and so Jonah goes. Now here, here's Nineveh, the the capital city of the strongest nation on earth, 
But what's not in the book of Jonah, what scholars will tell you who've looked back at history, they've said right around this time, the the nation of Assyria has experienced a couple of stunning military defeats. They're not used to losing battles, but they've lost a couple of battles. And so they're feeling a little insecure. They're wondering what's going on. Why? Why are we suddenly not invincible anymore? And all of a sudden, here shows up this foreign prophet who, by the way, it, I just have it in my head that he looked a little strange. I think you'd look strange if you were in a belly of a whale for, for three days, maybe a little bleached out by all that gastric acid, maybe kind of albinoed out, you know, smelling vaguely of whale puke. I don't know. And, he, and he's, he's walking around the city saying, 40 days and Nineveh will be judged. 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Can we just say, this is not a Joel Osteen sermon he's preaching here? <laughs> 40 days and you're all going to die. He doesn't even offer hope. There's no invitation at the end. He just says, 40 days and you're done. And then an amazing thing happens. The king, the emperor of Assyria, hears this message and repents. He, he exchanges his, his, his royal garb, his royal robes for sackcloth, this itchy, scratchy, clothing that signified mourning and grieving and repentance. He put dust on his head and fasted. He gave a command throughout the entire city. Let every Ninevite pray to the God of heaven. Let every Ninevite put on sackcloth, mourn and fast. He even commanded that all the animals be clothed in sackcloth. I guess he was thinking, we don't know this God. We just want to go over the top with obedience just in case. We want to make sure. I can't express to you how stunning this is. The closest thing I can come up with is, imagine you were watching the news today and the the leading story was that Kim Jong-un, the president of North Korea, got on North Korean television today and said, everything I've ever done up to this point has been a mistake. I've done a terrible job of leading these people. I've starved millions. I've, I've persecuted the church. I've threatened the world with nuclear destruction. And today, I regret every bit of it. Would that be remarkable? Would that be a big news story? Yes. And that's exactly how big it was when the king of Assyria did what he did. So, Jonah is blown away by this. Jonah says, goodness, Lord, you knew what you were doing and I didn't. I'm so glad I came to Nineveh. Actually, no. He's still still not sold on God's plan. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah is the only preacher I know of in human history who was ever mad because people listened to his preaching. He's actually angry that people heeded his warning. And mad enough to die. I mean, that's pretty dramatic. So Jonah does this crazy thing. This is how stubborn this man is. He actually goes out to the outskirts of Nineveh and sits and waits and watches. His idea is, once the 40 days pass and God hasn't destroyed them, I think they're going to get over their fear and they're going to go back to their old ways and then God will roast them and I'll be here to watch it. And he waits, but it doesn't happen. He waits so long that there's time enough for a plant 
to grow up behind him, a shrub of some kind that covers his head so that he has shade from the heat, which is nice. And then God sends, this is not kidding, God sends a worm to eat the plant and the plant withers and dies. And Jonah is once again in the blinding heat and he's miserable and he says once again, oh Lord, just kill me. And here's the really amazing thing about the story. The book of Jonah ends on a cliffhanger. We don't know whether Jonah ever saw things God's way because the way the book ends is God says to Jonah, you're upset about the death of a plant and you don't care anything about these thousands of human lives in Nineveh, which means so much to me. And that's the end of the story. This is a stubborn man. Extremely stubborn. But you know what? God was more stubborn. God's stubbornness won out in the end. I mentioned in the, earlier in the service um, that there is a good stubbornness, and that is the stubbornness of God. Don't get any ideas, gentlemen, if you think, well, my stubbornness is the good stubbornness. No, it's not. Yours is not. I can tell you. God's stubbornness is. God is so stubborn. Think about this. Jonah said no to God several times in this story. And every time, God could have said, okay, I'm done with you. I'll choose someone else to preach to Nineveh. But he didn't. You ever ask yourself why? Why God sticks with this faulty prophet? The answer to me is because he wasn't just interested in changing Nineveh. He was interested in changing Jonah. Now, if you're a, a Christian and, and you've been trained to think that, that we should pray for the lost, we absolutely should. We absolutely should. God is out to save those who are separated from Him, but God is also out to transform those of us who call ourselves His children. And God is not done with you yet. You are still under construction. God wanted to change Jonah. God wants to take flawed people and build them into the image of His Son. So i got good news and bad news for you today. The good news is that God's love is stubborn. God's love will not let go. He will not give up. And that means that we never stop praying for our rebellious child, our backslidden spouse, our unbelieving neighbor. We never stop reaching out to that friend who's headed down the wrong path. We never give up on them. We never stop loving that jerk we work with. The guy who's, who's hostile to everyone, who... who meets all your entreaties with hatred, you never stop returning Him love for hatred and, and joy for grief because God doesn't give up on anybody. God's love is stubborn. Second Peter 3.9 says, He is patient, not wishing any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That verse was written because early Christians were thinking, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? And Peter's answer was, because there's still people who haven't repented yet. There's still people God wants to give time so they'll come home. And He's still waiting. God's love is stubborn. It also means that there's nothing you can do, nothing you can ever do that will make Him stop loving you, that will make Him love you any less than He does now. I mean, I, I hate to use this example, but it's true. There are mistakes I could make that would cost me everything. There are things I could do that would mean I would no longer have the wife I have or the, my kids would have nothing to do with me. This church would no longer let me be pastor. All of that would be devastating. I'd, I'd squander all the good things God gave me. And yet, even if I made those terrible mistakes, His love for me would be the same. And His love for you would be the same. Still bear earthly consequences, but He doesn't stop loving you. That's good news. 
especially if you've made those mistakes in the past and you think, okay, I'm a second-class citizen in God's kingdom. No, you're not. You're someone for whom Christ died. But the bad news is God's righteousness is also stubborn. God's righteousness is just as stubborn as His love, and that means He will not rest while we still have rebellion in our hearts. That means He loves us too much to let us be happy in our sin. If you say to God, okay, Lord, I know you want me to do this, but I'm going to do this over here. I'm going to do things my way. That's not the end of the matter. He's going to continue to hound us and chase us. He's going to continue to convict us of sin. He's going to bring judgment into our lives. I'll say it again. God will never let you be happy in your sin. The most miserable people I know are Christians who are willfully ignoring God's desires. And you might say, well, why would God be that way to his own children? Why would he make us unhappy? Let me ask you this question. If you had a teenage daughter and she came to you and said, um, Mom, Dad, uh, I have this 35-year-old lover named Spike and we're moving in together. Um, and uh, he, you know, he just got out of jail and he's working hard to, to kick the heroin habit and, and we're going we're gonna to do that together. Um, I just need you to pay for our apartment and our, our insurance, and a, a car would be nice, and, and maybe um, a little allowance here and there because, you know, he doesn't have a job. Um, so what do you think? If, if anybody here would say yes to that, I don't want to know you. I, you're you're the, worst, the worst parent ever. And, and I do know some of you. I, I do know, especially some of you guys, and I know what would happen. I mean, you would probably call the cops, but not before you put the hurt on Spike, right? I mean, he, he'd be like, I, I can go to jail. I don't mind. I, I, I can take him down. That, that'd be quite satisfying. Um, because you love your daughter too much to subsidize a terrible decision. And she'd say, Daddy, don't, we, don't you want me to be happy? Well, no, not if you're doing stupid things. I'm sorry. I love you too much to let you be happy with something that's going to destroy you. Believe it or not, I know it's hard for you to put yourself in this. You and I, deep down inside, we're that teenage daughter. Deep down inside, there's a part of us, maybe it's a lot of us, maybe it's some hidden part, but all of us have that part of us that wants to say to God, okay, God, I've given you all this over here, but I want this, and if you love me, you'll give it to me. And that's the stubbornness that keeps us from experiencing God's purpose in our heart, in our lives. That's the stubbornness that says, I want to manipulate God to get what I want. And he says, don't you understand? I have a purpose for you that's better than that. God's righteousness is stubborn. So let me just sum up this story for you and say, I think God won in the end, not just in rescuing the people of Nineveh. I think God won over Jonah, even though we don't have an ending to the story in the Bible. I think Jonah eventually, somewhere down the road, maybe days, maybe years later, said, okay, I was an idiot. I was a stubborn fool. And he told this story to someone who wrote it down for us. The reason I think that Jonah finally saw things God's way, otherwise, how would we have the story? There's no Ninevite that wrote this. Jonah told the story to someone as if to say, don't be like me. Jonah's message to you and me today is, listen, you can do things the hard way or the easy way, but God's not going to give up either way. 
You can do things God's way right now and experience His blessing and His fullness and, his, and the, the satisfaction of knowing you're doing eternally significant things because you're following His purpose. Or you can fight Him. You can fight Him to the death and you will lose every time. So there's two questions we need to wrestle with. Two th- questions we need to ask God today. Number one, is there anything, Lord, you want me to do that I haven't done yet? Is there anything you want me to do that I haven't done yet? Some calling you've placed on my life that I've ignored because it's inconvenient. Some person you want me to reach out to, but I, it's too uncomfortable. Some, somebody you want me to forgive. Some, somebody you want me to apologize to. Some, some part of myself that you want me to give over to you. Is there anything you want me to do that I haven't done yet? Because we can ignore the Holy Spirit so long that we build up the spiritual wax in our ears and we don't even hear Him calling us anymore. Today's a day where you say to God, okay, Lord, blast that wax out so I can hear your voice afresh and know what I'm not doing that I should be doing. The second question, Lord, is there any sin in my life I'm refusing to deal with? I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't know who struggles with what in this room. And if I did, I wouldn't tell you out loud in this place. But let me just say that in a room this size, I am positive there are going to be some people who are struggling with addiction issues whether it's alcohol or, or, or drugs or pornography or, or gambling or something else, and you're just, you're, I, I, I don't have a problem with that. You're saying to, your, to yourself and to your friends and to your family who are concerned about you, but you do. And some people in this room who say, you know, my sexuality is my own and I can sleep with who I want to, and you're not recognizing the damage you're doing to yourself and to others. And others who are carrying bitterness inside, and you say, that's, that's mine. I refuse to let go of that, because if I let go of that, it validates the person who hurt me, and, and I can't do that. What sin are you clinging to? Maybe it's just a bad habit that you just don't want to deal with. Maybe it's, maybe it's an awful temper, and you're afraid that if you deal with your temper, people won't fear you anymore, and you like being feared. What sin are you refusing to deal with? Ask God about that today. Stop being stubborn. Because the hard way, there's nothing good about it. Frank Sinatra can write songs about it all he wants to. There's nothing glamorous about a life in which the God who gave you life and loves you more than life and who says, I would rather die for you than live without you. There's nothing glamorous about living a life in which that God is at war with you because you refuse to do what's right. And His love and righteousness will win out in the end. Why not follow Him today? Why not submit to Him today? Why not get open and honest enough to say, I'm in, I may be in church, but I'm one messed up person. And I need to get right with Him this morning. And the, other, the answer on the other side of that is freedom. The answer on the other side of that is someday you can look back and tell your story like Jonah's story. And we can all just laugh. Yeah, you were a fool. So was I. But look what God has done. And that's what He can do.